Hi everyone, welcome to the Badass Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Fox. I'm in the thick of mood pitch events right now, so I'm going to keep this episode fairly straightforward with our guest author, who is a crime fiction author who also writes in other genres, hailing from the UK. And speaking of which, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on writing in different genres? Today's guest does not want to be cornered into writing in only one genre, and this is something that several of my guests have talked about. And I have to say, I agree. Now, when you're thinking about traditional publishing, you usually need to establish yourself first in a particular genre, and then start building up your author brand. Track records and stats will show that this does point to success. And then once you're successful, you can pivot into another genre if you like. And many authors in this case use a pen name, not to hide themselves, but so that readers can easily distinguish their work in different genres. Many self-published writers like the freedom that comes with being able to publish whatever they want, whenever they want, regardless of genre. Something else I wonder is how many of you out there are trying to write things in different genres before you land on something that really fits your style? How many of you know exactly what genre it is that you want to write, even if you're not sure what that genre is called? Is genre something that you consider before you sit down to write a story? Or do you just sit down and write whatever comes out and decide on genre after? I'm always curious to know how other authors' minds work when it comes to these types of things. We all have different backgrounds and experiences, we're all at different stages of our writing careers, we're constantly learning from each other, and it's interesting to see what others' thoughts are in the various things considered when tackling the crafting of stories and publishing. So if you're listening on Spotify, there's the ability to add a poll. So I'm going to go ahead and do that today, and if you have a moment, go ahead and share your thoughts. And now on to today's guest. My guest today is John Kennedy, who was born in Holmfirth and brought up in the Calder Valley in West Yorkshire. His first brush with the writing world was when a poem of his was runner-up in a competition at school and was published. John has done plenty to earn a crust over the years, including peeling bulbs in Holland and busking around Europe. About 20 years ago, he settled in the Northeast and took up a lecturing post. He's had some sci-fi published in anthologies and continues to put on the occasional short story in that genre because he loves it too and hates the idea that writers must limit themselves to one world. For his crime fiction, he's been shortlisted for the Crime Writers Association debut dagger and the Exeter Prize and longlisted for the Bath Novel Prize. The Trauma Pool, published by Sharp Books, is his first novel. So welcome, John, and thank you so much for taking the time Hi. to chat with me. Hi. Hello, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, to date, you have published three crime novels, which are part of the yeah. series with um, Detective Inspector Will Ashcroft being mm -hmm. the main character. Can you yeah. give our listeners kind of a brief overview of the series and maybe the mm -hmm. themes that are explored in each book? Yeah, sure. Okay. So, I mean, it's, uh, well, it's crime fiction, obviously. It's, um, it's quite gritty, quite dark crime. It's not exactly cozy. We've got two main characters Detective Inspector Will Ashcroft, uh, who gets the billing because, mainly because the, the that was a publishing publisher's decision. I wanted it to be uh, D.I. Will Ashcroft and W.D.C. Samira Byrne as the uh, uh, sharing kind of top billing. Okay. Um, 
because obviously the WDC is interesting for a start because that's, you know, that's part that kind of feeds into the theme of the whole thing because um, the very, the fact that there was a need for that prefix tells us that, you know, where we're, where we're at for a start. It's the 1980s, so, you know, and that prefix was still in use, the whole woman detective constable, you know, the fact that they needed that prefix. Right. That were, and, you know, mm-hmm. mind-boggling, really. Why, you know, why would it even be? <laughs> yeah. Was it about differentiation, you know, just in case anybody mm-hmm. wasn't? Well, okay. So, I mean, very strange. But anyway, yeah. So, um, yeah, so there are two main characters, and it is very much a double-hander. It's in written from both of the POVs, you know, we, we move from one character to the other, pretty much chapter by chapter, really. But anyway, so uh, he is uh, suffering from PTSD, um, which allowed me to get into the whole kind of attitudes to that in the 1980s and the fact that in the, in the 80s and early 90s, very little very little was known or admitted about PTSD. Right. Um, there was an assumption that it was, you know, uh, something that only, in England anyway, there was an assumption that it was something that only soldiers mm. could possibly suffer from. And for a while there, it was there was an assumption until the Gulf War and even beyond that, the first Gulf War, there was an assumption that, you know, it was um, something that only US soldiers would suffer from. Oh my goodness, <laughs> really, 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 really. There was, wow. actual, despite the fact that we'd had the First World War, you know, yeah. which, let's face it. Um, but, you know, it, there was this kind of, well, you know, it couldn't possibly happen to, couldn't possibly happen to British soldiers. We're, we're mm. made of sterner stuff, you know, it yeah. stiff, stiff upper lip and all that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, um, pull yourself together, just get on with it. Mm-hmm. That sort of attitude. So, um, yeah, th- that kind of thing. It allowed me to kind of get into that. Um, okay. So, and then, and then, of course, uh, Samira's character is facing uh, racism within and uh, outside of the force that she's serving on. So that is obviously, and having that in the eighties and nineties is quite interesting as well because and and it's setting of quite a northern. I won't say a redneck town because that would be unfair, <laughs> but definitely a kind of there is a, a a very gritty kind of working class downtrodden sort of feel to the place where it's set, and mm-hmm. um, yeah. So in any in any case, the two of them are kind of marginalised for different reasons and in different ways. I think, and they're both facing prejudice of some sort, and mm-hmm. that. I had the idea that that pushed them to towards that being on the edge gave them this kind of empathy and willingness to kind of to kind of engage in cases that might have been left alone or to look again at things rather than accepting the surface level kind of answers okay. to questions, you know, to kind of to dig beneath and to kind of um, to associate to empathize with with the victim, I guess. Right. So, yeah, it's quite a nice kind of the two characters. The actual the stories uh, of the first the story of the first one is about a, a missing boy, and it comes to be a a veteran of the uh, the Falklands conflict conflict at the time, which is in 1980. So you know there was that who had uh, basically also had, although it's not wasn't named, but basically also was suffering from PTSD, and that that 
um, led to him kidnapping this boy for reasons that are too convoluted to kind of <laughs> go into. But yeah, so it's about that. So the first one is the trauma pool. The second one, the kill chain was more to do with rave culture. So it was about that whole, yeah, the, the emerging kind of rave scene of the late 1980s um, and that, I guess theme, thematically it's about hedonism and control, I guess, in terms of the establishment control or lack of control over kids at that time. So it's quite interesting to get into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then book three is was actually touched on kind of human trafficking, sex trafficking, which is one of those things that, you know, you're writing thrillers and it's there's genre thrillers, you know, there's, let's not, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. pretend, pretending it's anything other than that. I mean, hopefully they say something about the human condition, but they're, they are thrillers in the end. And what made you decide to set the series in the 1980s? You just, like, these are themes that you wanted to explore? Yeah, partly. I think that it's, um, but just because that, yeah, that time is was is kind of on the on the cusp, really, on the edge of progressive thinking, maybe, and that, also, I, yeah, obviously, it's, it's the era I kind of came to consciousness in. So it's an era that I do know and do remember um, with something like a mixture of fondness and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, the, and the opposite. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think kind of for those reasons, really. Yeah. Yeah. And just talking about like, you know, you, you, you know, that time you were in that time. So like, I always like hearing about the research process that, that uh, writers have, um, especially like when it comes to doing things like crime fiction. So what kinds of research did you do to make sure that you're mastering like the detective skills, for example? Yeah. So that you got those right on the page. Yeah. I I mean, I'd see it in three kind of three strands really with, with the research, I think. Yeah. The detective stuff, obviously, is important so that um that would be one of the one of the three that the the kind of uh checking facts and details and obviously and uh when certain scientific advances happened and when certain you know detection uh procedures and when procedure changed and all that kind of stuff i used um there's a very good book the Crime Writer's Guide to Police Practice and Procedure by Michael O'Byrne was really, really useful. Um, it's it's probably very Anglo-centric. It's probably very British. I think there's some, it touches on some US procedure as well, but very much as a kind of occasional comparison. But it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very good. That was very useful, but it was set in the present day and it wasn't exactly a history of so mm-hmm. a lot of the time that was looking at that and then working backwards, thinking, okay, so that's what happens now, or that's what happened in early 2000s, but what would have happened before that? So I'm kind of working back quite a lot. Um, that was one source that was brilliant. I, I, I met uh, an ex-DCI. This is really strange. I was in, I live in Newcastle, um, which is in the northeast of England, and it's about 100 miles north of uh, the the Calder Valley where I, where I set these these novels, yeah, I was, I, but I just went to some writers thing, some writers conference thing, and this guy was an ex DCI and he had been a detective chief inspector for the West Yorkshire Police, uh, 
and Greater Manchester Police, I think, at one point, and he was just giving this talk. And I, so I, I, I thought, wow, this is incredible. He's just, you know, I need to talk to this guy. So I went and talked to him afterwards. And I was like offering him, you know, I was saying offering him cash, you know. <laughs> I was so saying, look, you know, I'll I will pay you to kind of, you know, if you give me, just give me something. And he said, don't be silly, just just send me the occasional email. Whenever you get stuck on something or you want to find out about something, just send me an email. And, you know, I'll get back to you. I'll have a think about it. It's, it's quite funny, you know. I'll have a think about it. It might take me a couple of days, lad, but I'll get back to you. <laughs> so, you know, um, and fantastic. And, yeah, so little things like, it was the strange little things that you're just not sure of, you know, like, yeah. okay, would it be possible to, I can't know, I'm trying to think of an example. Like, what would, you know, um, how long would it take, for instance, to trace a phone call from a phone booth in the mm. 1980s or to find out who could, would it be possible to find out who the last, who had made a call at a certain time from a phone booth in the 1980s? And he was like, you know, yeah, I'll get back to you, lad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, within a few hours, he'd, he'd write, he'd write me back and say, yes, you know, this is what, you, this is what you would do. You would, you would have had to go through the, the, the force intelligence officer and you would have had to get them to do this and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just invaluable, really that kind yeah. of, that kind of depth and that kind of detail, because it's just the kind of stuff that you, there's no way you can, <laughs> there's no way you would find that online or even mm-hmm. in, in, in books on the subject really. So yeah, fantastic. Yeah. But I didn't ask him that much. I don't think I just, there was more, I think I emailed him about four times. The rest of it, I just figured out or got online or from occasional books. Um, and I, I, I probably made stuff up as well. And I like, I, <laughs> I don't to admit that, but I think, um, Harry Bingham, I don't know if you're aware of Harry Bingham, who runs something in the UK called uh, Jericho Writers, which is quite quite big, right? Harry Bingham always says it because he writes his Fiona Griffiths novels and always says that, you know, he he makes most of it up. He'll check as far as he can and then just makes it up, which I I I like that kind of boldness. I do think as long as you... If you're writing it with conviction, with enough conviction, and you believe in it, and you know the there's an overall truth to what mm-hmm. you're writing and the characters, then I think you know it, it's it's not going to be an issue really if you mess up little details. Yeah. To, um, historically, obviously, yeah, as you say, it was kind of set in the eighties and nineties, so his, historical cultural kind of stuff was kind of ingrained in me to a certain extent. But then as far as the racism and the police angle, I found a fantastic book called Policing, Race and Racism by Michael Rowe, which was brilliant. And from that, I remember getting uh, the idea really for for the hook for Samira's character, really, in that mm-hmm. this was I, this really fascinated me, the, the idea that the of all the problems and of all the problems faced by black officers at that time in the eighties and nineties officers of color at that time in the eighties and nineties was that their main fear, it wasn't, it wasn't to do with, you know, being bullied in it within the force or being even abused within the force as such, because most of that was kind of sly you know, would never be face to face. It would never be overt. So they weren't, it wasn't that. It, the main thing they were um, concerned about was 
that fear of being in a difficult situation in a in a you know being called out to 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 something to a case to to whatever to a situation and uh blowing in for backup you know calling in for backup and it not turning up basically oh, wow and that yeah i know and that just that that just hooked me you know i was just oh my god can you imagine that you imagine mm-hmm. being in that situation so i just I, I that was a massive hook for me so i just thought right I, I think the other strand for me with the research was probably the ptsd uh in that you know i, I, had, I did know one person who was who suffered from ptsd but i didn't want to i i, I had some observations obviously with him but I, it just didn't seem like I wanted it it wouldn't have been right to to keep questioning him about it so I kind Mm. of I found a book by uh Professor Gordon Turnbull called just it's just called Trauma Mm -hmm. which is is fascinating and he was one of the the main um uh, he was one of the the psychiatrists who well psychologist I think to begin with a psychiatrist who um was the first to treat PTSD and the first to recognize it. And, you know, and he kind of cataloged um, reactions to it and, you know, the, the the development of the understanding of it throughout that period, the eighties and nineties. So that was brilliant. That was a, a fantastic find. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those were the three main sort of areas. Um, but it's, I mean, it's fantastic, isn't it? We've got everything at our fingertips really. It's amazing how much you still get from books, though. And, you know, I kind of I do remember going at one point to a library and uh, in in the in the Calder Valley and looking at the microfiles, you know, microfiche, microfiche. I don't know how that's pronounced. Yeah. 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 So looking uh, looking at newspaper reports from that time. And that was that's great to go back and do that, though. There's something you can't do online, really. Right. Yeah. Just finding those local papers from that time was fantastic. You know, you get a real feel for for the time. And it's yeah, yeah, that was fun. Felt like a real writer doing that. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, It's funny because I mean, so much of that stuff is still not digitalized like it's there were some of the research that I've done for for one of my previous manuscripts I had Mm -hmm. to try and like that's what I wanted to do was go and look in a newspaper and but it was Mm -hmm. from like the 18 1859 (laughs) so yeah but I mean the same I had to do it for my computer because it's not even the same country but it's you know I I was it's you can get a lot of information from a newspaper from you know whatever the era is there's it's not just about the article. It's about yeah, what else yeah. is going on, right? Yeah. It's, not about the, it's not even just about the events, is it? It's just you get a feel for the yeah for the time and for the attitudes. And, exactly. Yeah. Even the way things are written, the words that are used, things like that. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I really like that you, um, I mean, obviously books are, are a great resource and, and libraries and uh-huh. things like that, but it's fantastic. I always love when I hear that an author has in some way or another reached out to a professional in yeah. that area right because you're right you there's just, there's things that they're going to know that you can't research online and yeah. just those little yeah. little things and they can make all the difference sometimes i've yet to do a uh to do a ride along with uh oh, yeah <laughs> gotta do it though gotta do it yeah I think oh, of for, course but what i'm doing for, for what i'm writing now it's contemporary so i, w- I really would like to do that actually would like yeah. to do a ride along. and i do know one guy on the force at the moment so i'm gonna yeah. Yeah, I'm going to see about that. 
that would be fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, Especially if there's, a, if there's a chase, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm down. I'm down. <laughs> Uh, I have a feeling it's probably not most of the time it's not like that but you never know so what sorts of parallels and changes have you found between the research that you've done back in that time in the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. um, versus today and like how things were done what was acceptable then versus mm-hmm. now and and how do you think those things will resonate with your readers yeah um well I kind of set out with the intention of I, I was thinking that you know because it could be held up as something of a kind of a mirror to, to now or, a you know, to actually so that people would maybe pick up on things and think, mm, well, that wouldn't happen now. Mm-hmm. Or, or would it, you know, that kind of, yeah. um, has the, have things changed as much as we, as much as we th- might think or might want to think, mm-hmm. have things really changed that much? Obviously attitudes towards, uh, I was going to say, obviously attitude towards racism of, have changed, but of course, given recent events, have they, you know, so we've got, obviously I think things have gone through massive changes, but um, there's always the, the fear that really under the surface, things haven't changed that much. And it's, Mm -hmm. which is kind of scary. I I do remember actually an, an agent, one agent said to me that um, I was sat down with an agent and she said, um, why don't you just set it in the in the present day? Because blah blah blah, you know, it's yeah. because for exactly those reasons that you know, there's no reason why, you know, because that stuff's all it's all now, and you know, then it would be more contemporary and and so on. And I kind of said, well, yeah, it would, and yeah, I've thought about that, but then I think there's something in having a detachment that is lent by something being in a different period. There's something in being able to distance yourself from it enough to, to, to do that, to do that questioning. Whereas I think if it's now and it's, there's a danger of hectoring a little bit, there's a danger of banging people over the head with things, with themes and ideas. And I just think that maybe that little bit of distance that, you know, the psychological distance in, in being this being 30, 40 years ago and us being able to remove ourselves from it, you can see it as a mirror to now or seeing as, symbolic of now rather than you know being yeah battered over the head with Mm -hmm. my ideas or my (laughs) views or whatever you know well you bring (laughs) up a good point though I mean if if a writer is going to write in in any particular era that's not our own there Mm -hmm. needs to be a reason behind that and it sounds like you know that that's a good reason it's it's a really good reason because you don't want to beat people over the head with those those things mm-hmm. that you're exploring. Yeah. So yeah, 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 that's really good. So you went from poetry to sci-fi to crime fiction. So what inspired the transition from genre to genre and how did you land in crime fiction? Okay. Um, I didn't kind of, I see that's uh, right. Okay. So I'm still, I, I still have a book of poetry that I'm lazily, gradually getting together and I'm going to get that out there. So mm-hmm. It's not so much a transition, I don't think. It's just that, you know, it's about what we have time for, isn't it, sometimes? That, um, you know, what can you place your focus on? And, you know, because I I do think with genre, you know, and I I know that there was a very – agents and publishers seem to have this – and it's still there, this very almost myopic view of the whole thing that, you know, you must – aim yourself at one genre with a 
you know, with the force of a, a blunt missile and and stick with it. And that's it, you know. And the, But I think people are moving away from that now. I really believe that writers seem to be saying, nah, sorry. Yeah. And, and, and very much with, obviously, with self-publishing and all this hybrid publishing, what have you, that there's a there's a there's a massive freedom in that that writers can establish themselves in one genre and then you know do it and do it in another so i think it's um yeah i and i'd still have some sci-fi stories i'd like to put out there i've got a sci-fi novel in the back of my head as well that i'd love to get to and uh, you know I've, I've even got a i've got a romantic comedy in there as well somewhere but yeah <laughs> but you know it's just like i would yeah i'd love to just it would be lovely to just write in all genres without having to worry about any of that but yeah if nothing else you could do it you could almost do it as a you know you could just do it under different names couldn't you and just imagine yeah. do that imagine you, may, you could make it in all genres and then say ha it was me yeah me all along yep <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so cool. I think I think people I, I think that's what they tend to do especially like with the yeah. traditional publishers right because you if you are established in a certain genre then people who know yeah. you and know your name are going to think oh it's you know it's thrillers or or whatever yeah. and then you you turn around and you write mg so mm -hmm. those are two very very different or you know like picture yeah. books or something so that there there's sometimes a reason to to kind of differentiate between them with with a, a pen name yeah yeah um but yeah i think you're right i think authors are tending to move away from that because i think you shouldn't be limited to no. what your creative brain wants to do you know you, yeah, you might absolutely. end up like kind of stunting your creativity by not exploring other genres yeah definitely mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's, it's so endemic in our in everything isn't it in the culture that we're just in this whole postmodern thing that we're just surrounded by we're bombarded by information right you know mm -hmm. you look at netflix or whatever you know you, you're bombarded with choice aren't you you're bombarded with yeah. um not even your own choice but a choice that you're told you will like because you like this you will like this mm -hmm. and we're constantly everything is sorted by genre and tumbled together in it's just it's mind-numbingly well it's fantastic in one way in yeah. that everything's just there mm -hmm. and yeah but I think expecting people to to somehow conform to some yeah. some, some sort of forced boundaries based mm -hmm. on that is just is insane really and can you tell us about your experiences with publication yeah uh I started with any degree of seriousness after doing uh with writing after doing a, a master's course uh in Newcastle at Northumbria Uni which then I started writing I was writing and working on a novel which I kind of shoveled away somewhere in the bottom drawer it's still there um and it'll stay there um yeah. but I then came to the crime fiction idea and started writing something, but I was trying to kind of bang two genres together. I was trying to bang science fiction and crime together and in a way that didn't work. It could work, but it didn't work the way I was okay. doing it. So then I just came to the idea of just a crime novel, a, crime, a series of crime novels, which became, um, you know, the the D.I. Will Ashcroft and Samira Byrne stuff. I, in the meantime, in between that, I, I got some stuff published in anthologies and that was just putting stuff out there to, you know, to, yeah, just putting stuff out there, just scouring through the lists, you know, looking for things online and putting stuff out there to the 
to various anthologies and competitions and what have you. Mm-hmm. So I got some stories published in anthologies. I think anthologies are great. They're small press, but you know that was it was great. It, it's just wonderful, isn't it? Just having mm-hmm. seeing seeing your writing in print of any kind is just like yeah. wow, and it's such a kick, and that yeah. that gives you a start. I think it really does. So I would say to anybody out there, kind of trying to do this writing thing, that that's you know, if you can if you can handle the short form before you get into the long form, if you can handle because because short stories and novels, let's face it, are completely different animals. They're mm-hmm. not the same thing. A short story is not a short version of a novel, and a novel no. is not a long version of a short story. So, <laughs> no, because I think that's a classic mistake that people make. So, if you can get your head around that short form, I think getting things out there to anthologies and competitions and stuff like that is a great way to go. And then competitions as well, I think, are just fantastic in that it gives you definitely with a novel. Uh, if you've written the first few chapters of a novel, uh, you could you can get it out there to certain competitions. There are competitions for first novels, right? So you get mm-hmm. that kind of, they usually ask for three or four chapters or 10,000 words or whatever. Mm-hmm. That in itself as being, a, there's, all, there's it's twofold, isn't it? You've got the kudos if you manage to be shortlisted if you, or if you win, obviously, yeah. um, <clears throat> and the prize. But then you've got, it, it is practice in putting together that, um, you know, the package for agents or for editors, as you, mm-hmm. you, you guys tend to call them. So the, getting that together, I think competition is a great way of doing that. Competitions are really good for that. And if, you know, it just, you because you're forced to polish it, you're forced to kind of really, you know, hone those four chapters and get them as, as tight as possible. Yeah. And it's a great way of getting that package together for, in entering competitions. So I, I always advise people to do that. Just enter comps, do comps, do it. Yeah. <laughs> enter as many as, you know, as many as you can. I think it's great. 100% agree. Yeah. The other thing that I see people make mistakes over that, not that I'm some guru, I'm not in a position of, you know, <laughs> but just that agent, give them what they want. <laughs> Yeah, which seems really simple, but I think people make basic kind of cardinal errors with. Um, I think it's understandable. There's a, there's an ego thing in this. I think that people have this. We attach a certain mysticism to writing. If you think that there's a certain mystique that we lend to writers and writing, and that this whole idea of you know the, the the writer's block thing is is a is a prime example of that in mm-hmm. that giving it that name, writer's block, it's just a matter of semantics, but I don't think there's such a thing as writer's block. I think you get stuck. Mm-hmm. But I think giving it that name, writer's block, gives it too much power and it turns it yeah. into this mystical kind of, oh, I'm blocked. You know, I, I, the, my process is just not working today, darling. You know, yeah. yeah, Kind of, you know, it, we're all suddenly wandering all over the Lake District with our quills in hand and, you know. <laughs> waiting for inspiration and, and we're a conduit to, to the heavens or to, to inspiration. And if yeah. it's just not there, then oh, I, I can't write today. I, I shan't bother. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's just a, so I think we, we're given that ego thing. We're given that thing about mysticism and writing as being this um, mystical art that only certain people can do. And we're in touch with the soul in a way mm-hmm. that, nobody else is and it's just and we're special it, it feeds us in the idea our, our 
fragile little egos or ids. Yeah. <laughs> it feeds us this idea that we're special. And I think I've seen so many people wanting to write who um, have, have allowed that to mess up just putting a putting a package together for an agent or for an editor in that they they don't actually listen to what's being asked for. And mm -hmm. they, so the, you know, the agent will ask for, we want the first three chapters and they'll give them, oh, well, I'll, no, I'll send the whole thing, you know, because mm -hmm. it's special because it's me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to send them everything or they want the start of the novel and they'll say, nah, I get the, my best chapters are nine, 17 and, and 18. So I'm going right. to send those, you know, and people do that kind of thing and it's just crazy. You definitely want to give them what they're looking for, because I mean, each agent has their own tastes of what they like to see, what kind of material they like to see. And, yeah, exactly. you know, it, if you don't, I can't think of, I mean, obviously I don't know all the agents out there, but I can't think of any off the top of my head, at least that would say, give me the middle of your novel because they want <laughs> captures yeah. you at the beginning. Cause that's where readers are going to start. So they need yeah. to know. Okay, am I hooked at the beginning? If so, yes, then you can send me the rest of it if I ask yeah, for it, right? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. When you published your novels, did you did you go through an agent or did you self-publish or how, how did that all work? Um, no, it's published with a with a digital first company. Um, mm -hmm. I, I did have an agent, but at the moment I don't, but it's um it's a digital first company, so it's it's kind of a I mean, it's been, it's great. It's been a great, great ride with them. It's been really interesting. Digital first. So I don't, I know it's because people aren't necessarily aware of all of the different kind of publishing routes, but digital first. So meaning that it's, you know, obviously they're mainly available on Amazon as eBooks as mm -hmm. on Kindle, but also as paperbacks, you can, you can buy like a print on demand. Well. Yeah. Print on demand via okay. Amazon. But yeah, but obviously it means that it's not it's not in you know you won't get it in Barnes and Noble and you won't get it in you know mm -hmm. um, Waterstones or anywhere in the UK. So you won't get it in actual bookshops. But right. that that's the yeah that's the rub. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So it's with a digital first company. But that's yeah, it's it's good. It's been it's been great. It's been fun with them. Good. Yeah. Awesome. And then lastly, I mean, you kind of touched on some some uh, advice there, but you're also a creative writing lecturer. So if yeah. you could narrow it down to the three most important things <laughs> oh, wow. for writers okay. to incorporate into their <laughs> drafting process specifically, what would those things be? In terms of drafting, I think this has to be said in a, in a Marlon Brando voice, really. So I think <laughs> just, <laughs> just, tell a, just tell a story. It's, it's yeah. not about you. The thing about ego that I said earlier that I think mm -hmm. that people tend to um, write all about themselves at first. And of course that can be, that can be interesting and it can work, but mm -hmm. I think it only works probably in one in 50 times, you know, that you would get one person in 50 who actually has a story that's going to work even if it's not an autobiography as a semi-autobiographical as fiction, but they still manage to put themselves in there. Mm -hmm. And I think that rarely works unless you're, I don't know, Dave Eggers or someone, Yeah, um, you know. Well, there needs to be that universality that people can connect with. Yeah. Not, not just about yeah. you. There has to be something in there that resonates exactly. with everybody. Yeah. 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 And it's partly a fault of that whole, that adage about, you know, that everybody has a novel in them. I think yeah. everybody, everybody, you know, but I think, so just tell a story. It's not about you. That's one of my first things that I always tell them. 
the thing about yeah writing is rewriting and i know this is again it, none of this is new but writing is rewriting and i i really that's so important because again with students i have this this constant kind of tug away from that idea you know they just mm-hmm. do not like the idea that drafting anything you know that is and again it comes down to that whole i'm special and i can finish this in one go and i'm just yeah. going to write it and what comes out must be right and you know and the hemingway thing you know the first draft of everything is crap it, mm-hmm. it's so it's 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 brilliant it's so true yeah uh, we write by rewriting and you know and the other thing is, is that i it, you know, I think that people are may if you finished a draft, you're maybe a third of the way there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that yeah. there's so much more to do, and it's not just tweaking or editing, it's moving things around, it's throwing things out, it's oh yeah, writing new chapters, it's restructuring, it's messing with it. That's where all the magic happens. Yeah, it is. <laughs> oh yeah. And the other th- and the other thing about that though, yeah, and that's the positive it's the positivity, isn't it? That the angle that it's actually that stuff is great too that stuff is fun as well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know and also planning it is fun the planning yeah. it doesn't and people f- really react to that i mean again we've got the stephen king thing haven't we? we've got the whole kind of you know his idea of the the sculpture already being there the story's already there you're just chipping away at the marble to reveal what's underneath mm-hmm. um wonderful for him if he's a genius and he can do that, and I'm sure there are some geniuses out there who can do that. Yeah. I I need to plan personally. I don't know about you. I need to yeah, plan. I need to plan. I, I, plan it, I plan in detail. Yeah. And I really think that that's why so far I haven't really got stuck because I, I plan it. So mm-hmm. it doesn't mean you stick to every everything you plan. Of course, you're going to go. Right. You're going to change. You're going to move away from that. You're going to move around. You're going to, you know, you're going to find different avenues as you go along and you're going to find different cul-de-sacs as well. And you're going to, you're going to go off in different directions, but if the plan is there, you can always come back to it and you can always, and you can get to the end. And I think that's so important, mm-hmm. but getting people to accept that when they're confronted with a blank page and they're just yeah. kind of, you know, but they just want to get on they just want to get it written. No, I'm not yeah. doing all that planning. I want to write, I just want to write it. But yeah, so that, I think getting over that is the main thing. I I outline, I have to outline, I have to plan, I have to know what's going on. I need a roadmap. Even if you don't really do that at the beginning, you still have somewhat of an idea in your head, whether or not you write it down. So there is, there's, I think there's always some sort of planning going on. Even, you know, some people will plan just, you know, the next scene or two in their head. There's still like, you have to know what direction you want to go. Yeah. To, to some extent. And I think, uh, I don't know what people are going to say about this, but I think if you skip that process, you're going to have to come back and and, and deal with yeah. it at the end yeah. anyway. So whether you plan it now or you go back and you kind of like reverse plan, that works for some people too. But I yeah, think at yeah, some yeah. point you, you mm-hmm. still have to, you're right, writing is rewriting and you you have to come back and, and yeah. know what this is going to be so that you can get it to that point. And it takes time. It takes patience. It takes dedication. 
Mm -hmm. And it's definitely not going to happen overnight. It is absolutely never, ever going to be the first draft. I don't care who you are. <laughs> it's just <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, yeah. odd. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot of work, but but it's <clears> worth <throat> it in the end. If you stick with it, it's worth it. Yeah. And the work is and the work is the fun. The work is the, yeah. is the, stuff, the work is the juice. It's, yep. it's great. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. This has been great. Yeah, thank you, Kathleen. It's been been lovely. Lovely yeah. to talk to you. If you're pitching your completed, polished, ready-to-query manuscript in Mood Pitch this Thursday, April 6th, good luck. I hope you get lots of writing community love and support, and I hope you get some agent or publisher love on your pitch and mood board. I also hope you're enjoying the participating in the six days of pre-event activities that we host to help you get your pitches and mood boards ready, get inspired and excited, and make some new writer friends. This week is all about learning, growing, and showing support. And I have to say, I have absolutely loved it. Every time we do a mood pitch event, it makes my heart so happy because there's so many people in the writing community who are showing support for each other. They're they're building friendships. They are supporting each other during the events. They're sharing feedback and critiques and their own experiences. Everyone is making beautiful mood boards and working so hard on their pitches. And it's just, it's absolutely mind blowing and it's heartwarming to see how much this has grown over the last year. Um, this is the third time that we've been hosting this and we expect that it's going to be absolutely wonderful just like the other two times and yeah people are really loving it so it's it's something that makes me super super happy Lula is also super super happy we love doing this um, yes it is exhausting there's lots that goes on behind the scenes but we love every second of it and we are absolutely thrilled to have so many people come out and participate Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it's taught you something or inspired you in some way. And until next time, keep being badass.